We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 2. If you do not have a Bible or a Bible on your phone, you can take a Bible at the end of the aisle. If you do not own a Bible, that Bible is yours to keep. Let's now go before the Lord in His Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort with which you experienced when you patiently endured the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely on ourselves, to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, we thank You for this morning that we can come together in worship. That as we, as we sing and as we even now prepare ourselves for sacrament, we know that we can partake of Your Word and examine it, but realizing that it's not just us examining Your Word, it's You through Your Spirit and in Your Word examining us that we would be a people who are humbly putting ourselves before you, submitting and surrendering ourselves, saying, please let us be changed, conformed more to your image, Jesus. And there are perhaps things that can distract us this morning and derail us from really being present, all kind of things, things from yesterday or this past week, things that are ahead of us in the week to come. And I pray, whatever that may be, that you would allow us to really just be present, to, to lay those things aside for now, and to be just here, unfettered. I'm reminded, Lord, of the, the prayer from St. Ambrose, that apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. And I pray that this morning for us, that Jesus, you would dazzle us that we would be able to not try to see all the things that we need to do different about our lives or how we're going to apply this or that after we're done with the sermon or this morning, but simply like see you, like to get a beautiful, clear picture of who you are, Jesus, and that that would dazzle us, overwhelm us, compel us, and in turn then conform us to want to live more in your image. So we give you this morning. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Everybody said, Amen. Um, three years ago, after Charlotte 
my daughter was born, um, I knew that uh, immediately, here's what I first knew immediately, that I didn't know what I was going to do. Like I knew, I knew how to do nothing. It was completely overwhelming, all right? Anytime, you know, you have a child and you're supposed to, you've only been caring for yourself and you really haven't been doing that that well for most of your life. And then now this other human being's your responsibility. It's just a really overwhelming experience. And so I just regularly asked for advice on things. And, and, uh, but one of the things I wanted to do, I knew, you know, as I was putting her down at night and kind of create these evening rhythms with her is I wanted to like have certain prayers I prayed over her. So I, I crafted a certain prayer, uh, that I pray over her most nights when I put her down. Um, it's something that's just scripturally that's important to me. And, and it's the same thing time and time again. I want there to be a rhythm and a cadence, a liturgy for her. Um, I even like made up a song for her. Uh, to, to the tune of uh, Farah Jaka. Uh, you guys know that one? Uh, Farah Jaka, Farah Jaka, don't move. Um, do you guys want to hear the song? Okay. Okay, here, here you go. If you laugh at me, I will never speak to you again. Okay. But you can laugh with me. All right. It, uh, it goes, uh, Charlotte Murphy, Charlotte Murphy, daddy's girl, daddy's girl. He loves you so much. He loves you so much. Daddy's girl. Daddy's girl. Oh, isn't that sweet? Yeah. You want to hear the second verse to that? You sure? This is where I'm trying to get her uh, saved. All right. Um, Charlotte Murphy, Charlotte Murphy, totally depraved, totally depraved. Little bitty sinner, little bitty sinner, saved by grace, saved by grace. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, so there you go. So that's, I, I don't sing that one as much. You know what I mean? Uh, but she definitely gets depraved. Okay. So, um, but that's part of our rhythms. Like, and, but there, I remember talking to another friend of mine, a pastor in town, and he has a few kids and I've always really respected him and how he raised his children. I was like, Josh, you know, what is it you do with your kids? And, and he mentioned that he also recites the Apostles' Creed. You guys are like, Robin, that's way too much. Just put your child down for the night and be done. So, but I, I remember about three years ago, I started all these kind of liturgies with her because I wanted her to have a rhythm to her evening of, of how she would then go down and something that would be imprinted on her before she even knew how to speak. And so every night we recite the Apostles' Creed together. Now, she can't say the Apostles' Creed, don't worry, um, but I say it to her, and I found that um, with that, there's really become like a grounding to our family. Um, there's a grounding to us because this Apostles' Creed is something that has been in place now for almost 2,000 years in the church, like it's, it's foundational to us. Um, the Apostles' Creed, I've got a slide here, this is a, an illumination manuscript that was uh, made around the 13th century. But as you'll see with this, with this picture, we're going to show you one slide to kind of break it down, that the idea with the Apostles' Creed is that it was something that all the apostles, the 12 apostles, um, poured into, that they all kind of looked at. It was almost like trying to create like a, a shorthand of sorts about as we go forward in the world and we talk about this thing that's changed our lives, this Jesus, um, how is it we can communicate it in a really concrete, succinct way? And so the idea with the Apostles' Creed is since the first century, it was passed down orally. And then around the fourth century, it started being written down. And then since then, it's been um, curated. It's been refined. 
but that this is something that now for 2,000 years the church has used and looked to, has confessed together, that is something that we today can say the words to, that human beings were saying the words to in the same manner 1,500 years ago. That's incredible. Like there's assurance in that. And the reason why I just felt like, and as the elders, as we talked about it, we felt like it was important for us to do a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed was really around two or three things. One is we are a, a young church. We are a church that's going to turn seven years old this year, but even then we're still young for our age. There's still a lot of things we're trying to figure out. There's even a lot of things this year that we're experiencing that's making us have to like, man, that's going to that's gonna have to push us in another, another direction now. Um, and with that, with that youth, it's very easy sometimes to believe that you're living in a vacuum, that you're going rogue, that a lot of you, for example, maybe came to Christ City because the other denominations you were a part of just felt so stuffy. You were almost like claustrophobic. It could almost be narrow-minded right? And so you're here because you're going, ah, I like that there's more of a, of a, maybe like a freedom. You're not as attached to certain things. But I want you to know that's actually something that we want to see change. We, we don't just want to kind of be untethered. We actually do want to have a covering. Um, and that's something that we're going to be talking about as elders and moving forward with about what that looks like and means. But it's easy for us to want to live in a vacuum. What's important is to remember that we stand on the shoulders of women and men who've come before us. It's important to see that, that there are beliefs and traditions that we hold to as well that people have in the church for 2,000 years. So that's really important, that we also want to see that, that we believe in very foundational and practical things. It's been easy at our church to sometimes be a bit am, ambiguous as to what it is we stand on or believe in from time to time. And that's, those are things that we want to change. Um, we're going to have, um, as elders, uh, more kind of almost like these white papers that we want to present to kind of show here's where we stand on this doctrinally or this doctrinally, et cetera. But at the foundation of who we are is, are these beliefs that we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, that we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe when it says the Holy Catholic Church, what that means is the the universal church, the big C church, that there's something that interconnects us, that we aren't just the best church on the corner here at Christ City. We actually have brothers and sisters all throughout the city and throughout the world, that we stand in these beliefs, though. It's very important. But then lastly, I think it's really important that it's easy in our body to find more differences than there we have, like what we have in common. What I mean is this. I've been looking around. I mean, I've, I've, I've been a pastor for uh, 10, 12 years now, and a pastor here in Memphis for, for seven. No other church have I ever been a part of has more diversity, especially um, socially and politically and view-wise than our church. Our church has some very contrasting views and sides. And you know this, it's just kind of the elephant in the room. It's just the reality of it all. And that's a beautiful thing. That's an amazing thing. It really shows the diversity of our church in many ways. And yet, if we're not careful, we're only going to see the things that separate us and the things that bind us together. It's going to be very easy for us to look just to Facebook posts and find the things that we have that are different than the things that we have in common. 
And that's why we want to talk about the Apostles' Creed for 10 weeks. We want to look at this. We want to find what we have in common more than what we have, like, as a different view. Does that make sense? And this is important for us because if we're not careful, we'll eventually start coming to church wanting to judge the person on the other side instead of finding that we're actually sitting side by side with that person, that the glue that binds us together is Jesus Christ, and that these beliefs that we hold so firmly to. So that's why we want to look at what we believe, and that at the core of what we believe are these foundational truths found in the Apostles' Creed. Now, the first thing that we're going to do this morning now is talk about this first part of the Apostles' Creed, and that is God the Father. A very basic um, understanding in the church, and yet something I would say that perhaps we are miles away from that even though we firmly understand this idea of a father here in Scripture, it's still something that we have a lot of distance with in our hearts. So I want us to look at three things, the, the character, the father's character. I want us to look at the father's care. And then lastly, we'll look at the father's call. So let's first look here at the father's character. Whenever we look at the New Testament, one of the first things that pops out to us with Jesus is how intimately he can talk about his father. It's something that is almost off-putting, like something that is almost a bit uncomfortable, that he has such a direct and sincere relationship with his father that we read it and we go, I don't know if I've ever wanted to spend that much time with my father. Like, I don't know if I've ever had that kind of connection with my father. It's so tender and so sincere even that when we read about Jesus, because Jesus is talking about his father and so, so many times, time and time again, he gives us a prayer to pray. He's talking constantly in, in the Sermon on the Mount about his father. He's even going away to pray with his father. And we look at that, and it's very easy when you first come into the church, and this is actually a misunderstanding that's been presented for way too long now, and that is the big difference between the Old and the New Testament is the way that the Father can be related to now. That in the Old Testament, He was this kind of uh, master and um, overprotective and harsh Lord, and then when Jesus comes, all of a sudden, we have a Father full of grace. But that's actually not true. That's actually not true. That there's nothing Jesus is presenting about the Father that's new. This has actually always been there in the Old Testament. The problem has been for us, we haven't been taught that. And we've always had a hard time then reading and finding that. And that's why many of us stay in the New Testament. Because we believe that in the New Testament, what we'll find is just grace and love and compassion. But the truth of the matter is, grace, love, and compassion is all throughout Scripture. I want to show you a few verses here. So, first, keep this in mind. In the Old Testament, there's a cultural milieu, right? This idea of that there's a, an environment, like this cultural environment that the gods and that people are, at least people are forming about their ideas of the gods in. So, for example, there's the, the dominant themes of master and father were the cultural milieus in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East. And so the Baals, for example, if you were to read in the Old Testament and you see them talking about the Baals, right, what those were considered were masters, that there's like 
their masters. They're, they're going to be harsh, and they're going to be the ones that kind of oversee this world. You can look at the gods as a master or as a father. So if you look at the gods as a master, they're going to be these ones that create you as human beings simply for their own drudgery, for the things they don't want to do. And that's why when God appears to Moses in Exodus, he appears to him as this creator, this king, and this redeemer. He's coming to him not just as a master who has slaves, and he's going to whip them into doing the things he's telling them to do. He actually shows up as first a creator, and then a king, and then a redeemer. It's a beautiful difference. Like, it's very contrasting. The Baals were only considered masters. They had to dominate. But then when Yahweh shows up, he shows up as someone who came to create you. He's your king. He's going to redeem your life. A very different understanding than what the ancient Near Eastern people believed in. Also, the other contrasting thing would be father. Now, in the Old Testament or in the ancient Near East, gods were considered fathers because they gave birth in a sense like they fathered the world into being, right? They'd be kind of this contrast of, I mean, this combination of father and mother. And so the gods were considered these fathers, and yet they were harsh. So they were actually bad fathers. They would leave this horrible imprint on their children. It was, they were like abusive fathers. When Yahweh shows up, he, he immediately takes this language of fatherhood. And I want to show you just a few verses about how this looks in, in the Old Testament. First, let's look at Deuteronomy, and you can just we'll put them on the screen. You can mark them down. These, again, are just verses that talk about God as a father. Deuteronomy 1, verse 30, the Lord your God goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went into the same, until you came to the place you are. Look at this part. As a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. He's, he's literally taking this image of a father picking up his son, a toddler, get a, like a two, three-year-old. He picks up his toddler and he just carries him. I mean, there, there's very few sweeter images than a father picking up his child and just holding his little boy, little girl to his side and just carrying them. That's the imagery being used here. That Yahweh's saying, you were just, you thought you were going through a harsh wilderness. I want you to know something. I picked you up and I just carried you. Actually, the the word in Hebrew is nacha, nacha, meaning to carry. It's, it's actually the imagery that anytime you see the word carry throughout the rest of the Old Testament, which will be used time and time again in the Psalms and in the prophets, it's always meant to go back to this passage that I am a God who's not just a master, I'm not a master, and I'm not just your creator, king, and redeemer. I'm actually a father, the kind of father who scoops down and picks you up and carries you to the next place. It's a beautiful, sweet image. We see in Isaiah 64, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. That this imagery of a father is being compared now with this idea of 
a potter, a craftsman. And any time you have a craftsman, they're going to pour their heart and soul into their craft. They're going to meticulously lay out all the details to it. Make sure that it's not just functional but beautiful, that it's useful. It's something that if you've ever created something, no matter how bad you were at it, even as a kid, remember when you created little things you know, like in your arts and crafts class, you take it home and you're so proud of it. And you take it back to your parents and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so fantastic, this is so great. Even though it's the ugliest thing in the world, right? You look at it today, you're like, oh my gosh, but it's sweet. This is how it is with our father, that as a potter is with the clay when he's shaping and forming it, so you are with us, God. In Hosea chapter 11, you know, the, Hosea, the story of Hosea is that he was a prophet, and God called him to marry a, a woman, Gomer, who would always be unfaithful to him, and it was his job to always pursue her. And so here we have then God shifting from Hosea being the analog now to it being really about God and Israel. And he says in verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bells, to the masters, and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke in their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Like there's this beautiful imagery here that I'm the one that, that took them by the, the hand and like taught them to walk. What a beautiful, sweet image of God's coming down and saying, here, here, child, get up, and then I'm just going to walk with you. You know, and you're all stumbling and bumbling around. You can't get it right. And the whole time, that was God holding Israel by the hand as a father would who really loves their child and leading them along. Here in Jeremiah 31, verse 20, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Here's my point. God, as a tender, loving father, is not a New Testament concept. He has always been a good, loving father. This has always been the flow of Scripture. So look here at verse 2 when it says, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, grace to you and peace from God our Father, our Father, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. These words, mercies and comfort, the translation literally could be the God of empathy and the God of nearness. Like the God of mercy, mercy means you're having empathy for someone or something. You see them where they are. You truly understand their plight. You don't just sympathize with them from a distance. You go, oh my gosh, that is horrible. The God who is empathetic and the God also though who comforts you, meaning in, in the Greek, he's going to be near you. He's just going to be near you. He's right there. I mean, this is the imagery that is being pulled from the Old Testament. This is not new for the New Testament. And this actually even points to then why, so for Israel, this was their great sin. 
that they're a racist. Paul talks, this is what the book of Romans is about. When you read through Romans, the book of Romans is about racism. It's about Israel being so caught up in their own, their own culture, their own way of living, that they forgot their whole mission. Their mission was to be a lighthouse to the rest of the world. That they were, in a sense, taken by Yahweh as children and raised up, and they in turn now were meant to be bringing others into the fold, to be a lighthouse where the whole world could come to this piece of land in the middle of the world and then find salvation with their God. But Israel became so caught up in their values and their own customs that they literally became racist, that they could not see other people for who they were. They could not value other people for where they came from. And they did not want them a part of their own culture. And so with that, when Jesus comes, he's coming to break down the barriers of having access to this God, to Yahweh, that he now wants it for the whole world to have access to. He's coming to condemn the racism of Israel, of these Jewish people, and to say, listen, this God now that you are worshiping is meant for the whole world for them to come to and experience. It's this fatherhood of God, this tenderness, this nearness of God that Scripture is trying to get us to. It's what Scripture is built around, this tenderness and nearness of God. In your bulletins, there's a quote from J.R. Packer. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. It's a tough line. But a true line. Because the first thing that we're introduced to of Yahweh in the Old Testament is he is a father. He's nurturing, he's loving, he's caring, he's helping us walk. The thing that Jesus is trying to introduce us to in the Gospels is God as a Father. The thing here that Paul's trying to say is that you've got to see that He is a Father of empathy and a Father of nearness. So here's the question that I have for us, because ten times in ten verses, comfort is talked about. That means He's trying to make a point. If you're saying things ten times within just a few sentences, we need to pick up what it's there for. And for us, for many of us here, we can easily connect with Jesus as a grace-filled grace, grace, grace and a merciful Lord that we come to, the older brother who loves us and died for us. But we have an incredibly hard time coming to God as a father, saying, I just want to be near you. And so the question is, why is that the problem? Like, what's keeping us from able to go to the Father, to be so prompted by the fact that we have, like, adoption? Now, I want you to hear me say this. The Trinity is always pointing to the other. But here's the thing. We go to Jesus, and we want to make Jesus the end goal. All the Trinity is the end goal, okay? Hear me on this. But Jesus wants you to look at Him so you can see the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you're only seeing Jesus and never want to get to the Father, then you're not actually seeing Jesus clearly. Jesus wants you to get to a caring and loving Father. If you can't get there, then something's wrong. Jesus ain't the problem. No, I want you to hear me. Like, you're the problem. Like, your story's the problem. So, this is what I want us to talk about for a minute. 
what keeps us from actually wanting to be comforted. Because look at verse 4, the first part, who comforts us in all of our affliction. The word affliction, the imagery here is like being squeezed, like it's pressure. It's like imagine hands going to both sides of your face, right? And it's just like squeezing you. It's like you're just feeling the pressure of life. It's a headache. If you ever can imagine, like if you get that imagery, like that's a very uncomfortable imagery. You're even uncomfortable looking at me doing that with the microphone in my hands. You're like, that is weird. Don't do that again. Anytime you're feeling pressure in life, it feels like affliction. It's tribulation. And it says that he comforts us, that he's near us. This God, this Father is near us in our affliction. But for many of us, we actually don't want God with us in those moments. We just want to go to Jesus. We just want to go to the Holy Spirit. And the whole time, the Holy Spirit and Jesus is like, we're here to get you to him. Like, we want you to see the Father. And I would say one of the things that really gets in our way is, is really this idea of that we disengage from our story, that we disengage from our story. And here's our story, that 99.9% of us have, you're, you're not going to like this, but 99.9% of us have father wounds. They're like, oh, great, here we go, daddy issues. Yeah, daddy issues. Like, there are there are these images we get from our parents. It's not just to your dad, or, but it's also to your mother. There are these images we get, these, these experiences we have from growing up. Because the first thing that you're taught as a child is that there are these two people or one person, depending how you grew up in a single home or with both parents, this person represents the highest authority in your life. This person represents the, 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 the presence, the being who's going to take care of you. And for a lot of us, I'm sure that you had a pretty decent childhood growing up. For others of you, I know your story, you didn't. And it's very easy for us then to associate, obviously, then God with our parents. And the thing that keeps us 99, I would say, 0.9% of the time away from actually experiencing God is the PTSD we have with any of our parents growing up. And so what we do regularly is, you know what, they did the best they could, they did fine, let's just move on. But the thing is, you haven't moved on because you still have a problem with God. If you really had moved on, God could truly be a father to you. You would yearn for Him. You would want to turn to Him time and time again. You would call out for Him. It would prompt your worship constantly, like that quote said, but it doesn't. Because somehow, some way, the experiences that we've gone through have shaped us and our views here in life. And here's, I'm not saying at the end of this sermon, go call up your mother and father and say, you know what, you guys were really crappy parents, thanks a lot. I just want you to know that, all right? And now I'm going to go to God and He's going to be a better father to me. No, that's not it at all. That's a horrible idea. But what I am saying is, you actually can't outrun your story. Because wherever, wherever you go, there you are. Like, you, you can't, like, move past your story. You only have the options to build upon your story. Say that again. You don't have the ability to move past your story, to move past those hurtful moments, those hurtful experiences. You only have the ability to build, to build upon those experiences in life. It's not water under the bridge. It's not, well, that's all in the past. It's what are you going to do 
about that? How are you going to engage that story in a new, fresh way so that it quits dictating how you're going to interact with life today? Because all of us have these broken parts of our lives, but until we learn to deal with those broken parts of our lives, they will keep dictating how we live today and how we see God. And here's the thing, you as parents, you're going to do just as bad of a job as your own parents did. You're you're not going to necessarily get it any better. If you have kids, your kids will more than likely need therapy and counseling at some point in life. It's just the way it is because we are imperfect people. The question is, do we provide atmospheres to talk about these things out loud? You can't always get it right, but you can talk about how things have gone wrong and then come together to something that can heal us. So for many of us, the first problem is we try to disengage our stories. But the second thing is this. We try to disengage from our needs. I think this is, what also, I think this is probably the main thing that keeps us from actually wanting to be comforted by God. And what I mean is this. You and I try to become so self-sufficient with our own lives that if we see a need, so for example, he's saying here, he comforts you in your affliction. Whenever we have affliction, tribulation, problems, do you like to run to everybody else and tell them about it? No, you don't. Do you like to get on Twitter and just let everybody know what a horrible, sad life you have and be self-pitying? No, probably not. More than likely, when you have affliction, you want to keep it to yourself. When you feel the pressures of life, you want to go inward, not outward. This is a tendency we all have. These are things we're taught. Like, don't be needy. Don't, don't, don't be a burden on other people. You've heard that one before. Don't be a burden on other people. But the truth of the matter is that if we actually want to understand to have a relationship with God, it means we have to be the most needy people in the world. Just like when a child goes to their father and says, pick me up and take me to this next place, that's what we have to do with God. But we teach ourselves time and time again that we do not have to be needy, that we do not have to go to him and say, gosh, I'm really uncomfortable. Gosh, this is really difficult. Would you please comfort me? No, what a childish thing to do. We shame ourselves time and again. And that's because we were taught early on that somehow, someway, somebody in our story wouldn't pick us up when we were in need, and we learned a narrative along the way to not be needy. But here's what Paul is saying. If you want to get your faith, if you want to understand what this is about, you're going to have to be needy. You're going to have to go to the Father and say, I'm really uncomfortable. I don't know what to do with all this. Can you please help me? Dan Allender, he said that the absence of tumult, problems, pressure, more than its presence is an enemy of the soul. God meets you in your weakness, not in your strength. He comforts those who mourn, not those who live above desperation. He reveals himself more often in darkness than in the happy moments of life. See, the only way to deal with the pressures of life is to face them. And that there's only one way to actually find comfort, and that's to go through the discomfort. But many times what we try to do is we try to solve our suffering, then surrender our suffering. So, say it again. We tend to try to solve our suffering, then surrender our suffering. That whenever you're going through pressure and suffering, your tendency and my tendency is to say, how do I fix this? 
How do I fix it? Anybody else really enjoy fixing things in your own life? Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I never want you to know about my problems because I'm really good at fixing things. At least I think I am. Unless you see me put together a, a piece of Ikea furniture and then you would think differently. But in general, like, I'm like, you know what? I can fix this. So when I see a problem come up, I want to solve it. Whenever I'm suffering, I want to solve it. Instead of when I'm suffering, I want to surrender it. See, this is what Paul is trying to say to us. If you try to solve your suffering, you'll never be able to experience the real comfort with this Father. But if you'll be willing to surrender your suffering, you'll find that in those darkest moments, that's when you find the most life. But here's the problem. We're doing all we can to avoid the darkness, to avoid the problems, to avoid the mess. And we do everything we can to set up this nice, tidy presentation for everybody else to see, as if you've got it all together in life. And everybody else around you knows the gig is up. Like, we all know that you're really imperfect and you're a mess, except for you. You think you got this. You think you can figure it out. And the longer we live that way, so self-sufficiently, so smug, so always trying to solve our sufferings, we'll never be able to experience really this comfort, this sense of God with us and God nearness. So what we're needing now is His care. See, character is hearing about someone great, but experiencing the care of God is much different. See, for a lot of us in this room, what's happened is you've heard about God being so good and faithful to other people as a good father, but you actually actually haven't really experienced that for yourself. So it makes us really distant and cold. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands on that. I just know that's the truth, that you hear about God being a good father to other people, but you're like, I don't see that in my own life. But for the early church, for the gospel writers, this was the most imperative first truth to understand, that if you want to really live out your faith, you're going to have to have a good, good father. You're going to have a loving father. You're going to have someone that you turn to and say, pick me up, please. Carry me through this. I don't know what to do here. I want to surrender all these sufferings and all these pressures to you. I don't want to be so self-sufficient. Because with that character of the Father, with the care of the Father, there's also now a call from the Father. Because if we don't experience those two things, we'll never be able to live out the third thing, and that is, you were meant to be a comfort to others. Look here in verse 4. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You are comforted by God, the Father, to be a comfort for other people. Whatever you experience with the Father is what you will pass on to other people. And this is probably why people don't like being around you and me many times, because we don't really know how to be a comfort. Like, we want to come in and give big hugs, but like, we're just like scary people. Like, come on, let me give you a hug and let me just kind of help you figure life out. And they're like, I don't need you to comfort me because you're scary. See, if your life is about having everything fixed, then you're going to try to fix everybody else's life around you. If you don't know how to be with yourself and quit trying to always fix yourself and not be, and not be, not be surrendering to God, you're always going to try to then point people to that, that you won't be a comforting presence. 
If you don't know how God can be near to you, you won't know how to be near other people. You're only trying to fix them. See, what it means to be a comfort is to be near and not to try to fix. This is your call. Your call is to go forward in the world. Here's how you communicate God, Yahweh, this Father to the rest of the world. You simply go and you're a comfort to other people who are feeling pressure. That's it. It's not rocket science. You, you don't need like all these like this amazing spiritual tool belt of getting someone saved. All right, let me pull out my really good doctrine here. Let me pull out my really good theology here. Let me put my really good life experiences here. People don't need that. You're getting in the way. Here's what they need. They need comfort. Can you comfort them? Well, you can't comfort them until you allow yourself to be comforted by the Father. And you can't be comforted by the Father until you actually deal with all this junk and crap in your life that keeps coming back up. If you want to actually communicate the message of this loving Father in the world, then it means we must be able to be comforting to other people not always trying to fix them. It also means that we need to be willing to take on another, another person's plight at the expense of our own. Take on another person's plight at the expense of our own. Look here in verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. It is impossible, impossible for us to comfort anyone else unless we're willing to enter in to the discomfort of someone else. It is impossible for us to comfort anyone else until we're willing to enter into the discomfort of that person. Do you get that? You can't like give them a hug from a distance and go, I'm so sorry you're dealing with that. That sounds really difficult. And then you move on. That's like the worst thing, that's the worst thing possible. You're a horrible Christian, all right? You can't do that. You can't just like walk and be like, I'm so sorry you're going through that, and I hope it works out for you, praying for you, and then you move on. That's not how this works, because that's not how God does with you. He doesn't look at Ephraim and go, well, you're a two-year-old, I'm going to leave you alone and come back in a few years and see if you figure it out. He, he's like, well, let me help you get up okay, let's walk. Okay, this is super annoying because you're a baby and you can't do anything, but let's still do this. All right, let's keep going here. Okay, you're going to fall back down. Okay, now you're hungry. Okay, let me pick you up. Let me feed you. Okay, now let me nurture you. Okay, let me be kind to you. Now let me comfort you. That's what it looks like. Yahweh saw the plight of Israel and entered into it and brought them out of slavery. Jesus enters into this world and takes on the plight of humanity, their brokenness and their darkness and their sin, so he gives us comfort at the expense of his. That's how this whole thing works. So we don't get to look at other person's problems and go, that sounds hard, I'm really sorry you're going through that. We actually have to enter into it and be a comfort with them, not trying to fix it. Listen, you can't fix the plight of what African Americans have gone through in this country for the last 200 years. You can't fix that. You can't fix all of that. But you can be with someone who comes from a marginalized social economical background. You can go and be near them. You can go and be with them. That's what it means for us to enter into the brokenness and pain of someone else. 
We see where they are, and we go, I'm going to enter into this. That's why so many of you that are teachers are teaching, because you want to enter into the plight of these children and their lives. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. That's why a lot of you have chosen to do outreach and mission and care in the city, because you want to enter into that. And that's what this church is meant to be, a church that sees the problems, and we don't try to step in and go, I'm going to fix it all and be your Savior. They don't… They don't need you as a Savior. They have Jesus. They just need to know if you can be near them without always trying to fix them and poke. Like, can you just be with other people? But you can't unless you realize that God's not always trying to come to you and go, you're a horrible person. You can't figure this out. Instead, He's going, I'm just going to come be with you, and I'm going to change your life because I'm God, but I'm first going to be with you. And lastly, this, to comfort others means you'll be pushed to burdensome and perilous places. To really comfort another person means you'll be pushed to burdensome and perilous places. Look here in verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. Are you being pushed in life to the degree that it may take God raising you from the dead for this thing to work out? Very few of us allow ourselves to be pushed in those degrees to be a comfort to those in this world. Here's what he's trying to say. There's a good chance you could lose your life over this. And I don't just mean like physically, like We live in a different age and culture here. But you're going to lose a lot of comfort to the degree, if you really walk this out, you're going to lose a lot of comfort to the degree you're going to feel like that you're dying. It's going to be a peril. It's going to be a burden. But this is the call of the church. The church is called to be a comfort for those who are uncomfortable, for those who are under pressure, for those who are dealing with tribulation. And we can do that because we've experienced that comfort in the midst of our tribulation. So, yeah, it's going to cost us something. Like, yeah, it means you're going to step into a situation and you won't be able to fix it. So, instead, you're going to be present. It means you're going to give of yourself to the degree it costs you something. And it means you're probably going to be driven to the edges of even a perilous despair. But to know this, no matter where you're driven to, no matter how perilous it is, there's a God that can raise you from the dead. And that's your comfort. Your comfort and my comfort is, at the end of the day, God wins. No matter what I go through in this life, no matter how much I suffer, God wins because He's going to resurrect this body and this life. That's why we can offer this endless amounts of comfort in the world. There's a, um, a story of this kind of comfort that I've always been really taken by from World War II. There was a people group in World War II that lived in the, the southeast mountains of France, uh, and the town was called La Chambon. And the people of La Chambon, the Chambonnais, 
they were actually originally a, a Christian uh, Huguenot group that was founded after the Reformation in the 16th century when Christians were being ran out by this kind of overlording um, government of the Catholics. And so these Christians, these Protestants, were ran into the mountains. So these Huguenots were living up in the mountains of France, kind of having their own life. Kept to themselves, didn't bother other people. And over time, obviously, Jewish people came to live with them, to be among them in their town. And during World War II, obviously the Nazis were out to kill and murder any and all Jews. And so the Chambonet had a decision to make. Will we harbor these fugitives? Will we harbor these people and give them safe, safe places? Will we care for them even at the expense of our own lives? Even if the Nazis show up and take our lives, are we willing to be a comfort to those who are in a perilous situation? And their choice was, yes, we will. We will comfort those who are uncomfortable and who are going through tribulation. We will give to them what was given to us by the Father. And so the story of this small town of only about 1,500 to 2,000 people is that with, throughout World War II, they brought sanctuary to close to 3,000 Jewish people. That's incredible that they constantly were giving of themselves and giving up of themselves for these people to find safe passage from the Nazis. And there's a particular story from one of the refugees there. Her name was Elizabeth Koenig Kaufman. And she was a little girl in World War II. And she was a survivor as a Jewish girl. And here's what she had to say. Nobody asked who was Jewish and who was not. Nobody asked where you were from. Nobody asked who your father was or if you could pay. They just accepted each of us, taking us in with warmth, sheltering children, often without their parents, children who cried in the night from nightmares. Never was there a question that the Chambonet would not share all they had with us, meager as it was. One Chambonet once told me that even if there was less, they would still have more for us. If today we are not bitter people like most survivors, it can only be due to the fact that we met people like the people of La Chambon, who showed us that simply that life can be different, that there are people who care, that people can live together and even risk their own lives for their fellow men. This is what it can look like when we care for people. But we only can do that if we experience the care of the Father. So this morning as we go to the table, Here's what I want to ask you. What's keeping you from experiencing the care of the Father? What are you finding that gets in the way of just going, I want to be cared by you? Is it, is it the story in your past that you don't want to deal with? Is it the fact that you just don't want to be a needy person? And here's what I would say then. As you come this morning, lay that down. Let God the Father truly be your Father. As you take of the body and blood of Jesus, here is someone who gave it themselves so you could have comfort. They went through uncomfortable circumstances so you could be comforted. And then consider, what does that mean for you as you leave here this morning? To be a comfort to those who are living in uncomfortable and perilous situations. Let's pray.